This is Bucks First Thoughts, the news you need to get through your day in 45 minutes. Make sure you subscribe on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. I bring you good news from sunny Florida, my friends. And as some of you will obviously be able to hear, I'm at CPAC having a, a bit of a reunion with so many of my, my freedom-loving friends and, and colleagues here. It's day one. It's relatively calm, but I know it's going to fill up with thousands and thousands of folks. Florida, for a New Yorker right now, is the closest thing I think you can have as an American to fleeing East Berlin for West Berlin circa 1965. You get down here, and there's mask requirements. You get down here, and there are people who are taking precautions. They're social distancing. But there's a, a difference in overall feeling where you're going forward with your life. You're going you're gonna to keep operating your store. You're going to keep showing up for work. People are going to keep moving forward. And it's just such a difference. It's amazing feeling it all around you, you see it going on. And I got to tell you, I'm, I, I feel like I work for the Florida Tourism Board every time I come down here, but Ron DeSantis deserves so much credit for this, has done such an excellent job. And in the face of unbelievable pressure and criticism. But CPAC, I'll have more stories for you tomorrow on this one. Right now, it's just the very, very beginnings of it. President Trump, former President Trump, pardon me, will be appearing here and talking about the future of the GOP. So there's a lot that we'll have to discuss about this. But I wanted to start with racism and, and fake racism and how fake racism can ruin lives. Now, I went to a college called Amherst. Amherst is in central Massachusetts. I bring this up because it is very left-wing, but not as left-wing as some of the other schools in the neighborhood, notably Hampshire College, UMass Amherst, which is an entirely different school for anyone who doesn't know. That's a state school for the University of Massachusetts. And Smith College. I know quite a bit about Smith College because I had a girlfriend who was a Smith attendee. And I can tell you that Smith is like living in an alternate universe. Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts is the most far left place I think I've ever been in my life. And that includes somebody, that, that's somebody who grew up in New York City and has lived in Greenwich Village and uh, has lived in Washington, D.C., which voted 94% for Joe Biden this last time around. Smith is all the campus lunacy that we talk about. It's like it's concentrated in one place. And it's the center now of a national level story over race and class and wokeness. And this reminds me very much of some of the, the similar situations that happened while I was a student there now going on 20 years ago. It's been quite a while since I was at Amherst College. Had a little stint at the CIA, popped into Iraq and Afghanistan, started a media career. Thank you, Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh. And now here I am. But I remember what it was like at Smith back in the day. I remember how ideologically driven so many people were and it was really the the totalitarianism of wokeness that we're experiencing every day that was only in places like smith 20 years ago to the extent that you're seeing it now 
where it doesn't matter what the facts are, it doesn't actually matter what the truth of any situation may be. What matters is, does this help the cause? It is very Soviet in a sense. I mentioned before what it's like to travel from East to West Berlin, or the closest thing to it for an American today, and that is going from a lockdown, a core lockdown place like New York City, and finding yourself in, in Florida. I'm in, I'm in Orlando, obviously, for CPAC. But the Soviet Union was a place where the, the truth didn't matter. The facts didn't matter. There was the storyline that the people in power demanded, and if you deviated from it, you, well, in that case, of course, could be sent to the gulag, you could be executed. I mean, it was worse than it is here. I'm not saying it's the same, but the mentality is similar. And the erosion of freedom that we've had, really, the, the threat to freedom, the damage to freedom that has occurred in the last year in America is unlike anything else we've ever experienced. So I do think it's legitimate. I do think it's fair for us to sit around and say, hold on a second, how much more of this can we take before we are crossing that Rubicon? And ha have we already crossed it in some ways? Are we on a, a glide path now toward a near totalitarian state? I know it's a scary thought, and you could say, oh, that's, we're, we're still a country with rule of law, and we're still a country where things, you know, you still have constitutional protection. How long are you going to have that for? Do we really think that that just endures? Do you really think that that continues no matter who's in charge, who's in power? In fact, if you look at the totalitarianisms of the 20th century, they arose out of periods of liberal reform. They arose from democracies. People didn't expect it to happen in the Soviet Union. They didn't expect it to happen in Nazi Germany. Or rather, they didn't know it was going to happen. Think of the, the Soviet Revolution. People... They don't study it in school. I mean, I really believe that you know, academics want Americans to be ignorant of socialism and the history of socialism throughout the 20th century, obviously starting with Karl Marx when, well before them, but then into the 20th century totalitarianisms. Because if you know about these things, you're terrified of them, and you want to fight them with everything you've got. If you understand what it is from history to live in a society where the truth does not matter then you understand how much you have to fight to prevent us from descending into that. And that then brings me to the Soviet-style absurdity of what happened at Smith College. Now, I, I know this place well. Um, I can tell you that there are, there are dorms there. There are dormitories that are segregated by uh, sexual preference and by, or, or sexual orientation or whatever we're supposed to say now to the point where you think, well, that, that can't be that complicated. Well, it actually does get very complicated very quickly because there are a lot of different preferences and a lot of different self-identifications that go into it. I could not even begin to tell you how many different sexual uh, orientations are represented on the Smith College campus. I'm, I'm being serious. I have absolutely no idea because there are so many and, there's, and they're constantly changing. Right? There are new ones that come up, and you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to say, "Hold on a second. Is that, is that good? Is that healthy? Is that moral?" You can't ask any of those questions. If you do, you're a bigot. You're a bigot. You see, the the wokeness has been weaponized in our society. That's what you're experiencing now. The terms that they've been building up over many years, the frameworks for assaulting people verbally, 
professionally, destroying their lives. They've gotten stronger. They've gotten more potent. And now they feel flush with power. Now they feel like they can get away with whatever they have to, whatever they need to. And we're experiencing that right now. And we don't have a particularly powerful uh, counter voice. We, we don't have somebody who can step up and say, enough. It feels like there's a void on our side. And uh, yes, that void is, is certainly, a large part of it is the absence of Rush Limbaugh right now. So I understand the concerns that people have. I understand the feeling that we seem like we can't win this fight. But we can. We will. First, though, we have to establish what it is that's going on. And that brings me back to Smith College specifically. Inside, this is the New York Times piece, inside a battle over race, class, and power at Smith, a student said she was racially profiled while eating at a college dorm. An investigation found no evidence of bias, but the, evident, but the incident will not fade away. That headline gives you a, a pretty good overview of what happened at Smith College. But here, here's a shorter, better version of it. A black female student at Smith uh, claimed there was racism when there was no racism, even went so far as to lie about who was even involved in the alleged incident, ruined lives, got people uh, threatened, people's, uh, people's livelihoods destroyed, and there was absolutely no, absolutely no consequences or punishment for her whatsoever. The only people who suffered were the innocent. The only people who had any downside in this whole situation were those who did nothing wrong, including 30-plus year employees of this college. Overrun by psycho libs, completely destroyed by wokeness, and it's really a, a perfect example of what the modern American college campus is. And I want you all to think about this before you get to the point where you're going to send your, your child, send your, your son, your daughter, to a now $70,000 a year boondoggle at a place like Smith. It is an unserious place, ethically, intellectually. The same thing is true of Amherst College, where I went, by the way. Unserious places. Hard to get into academically for some people. Not as hard for others. That's a whole other conversation. In fact, not hard at all, depending on who you are. But how did a completely innocent person get destroyed at Smith College? How did fake racism ruin lives? Well, that's the story we have to tell now. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Here's the tale from the New York Times, story by Michael Powell. In the midsummer of 2018, Umu Kanuete, a uh, black student at Smith College, recounted a distressing American tale. She was eating lunch in a dorm lounge when a janitor and a campus police officer walked over and asked her what she was doing there. The officer, who could have been carrying a lethal weapon, left her near meltdown. These are quotes from uh, and, and Miss Canawate wrote on her Facebook saying this encounter continued a year long pattern of harassment at Smith. All I did was be black, Canawate wrote. Uh, it's outrageous that some people question my being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. The college's president, Kathleen McCartney, offered profuse apologies and put the janitor on paid leave. 
This painful incident reminds us of the ongoing legacy of racism and bias, the president wrote, in which people of color are targeted while simply going about the business of their ordinary lives. The New York Times, The Washington Post, and CNN picked up the story of a young black female student harassed by white workers. The American Civil Liberties Union, which took the student's case, said she was profiled for, quote, eating while black. Less attention was paid three months later when a law firm hired by Smith College to investigate the episode found no persuasive evidence of bias. Ms. Canoete was determined to have eaten in a deserted dorm that had been closed for the summer. The janitor had been encouraged to notify the security on campus if he saw unauthorized people there, and the officer, like all campus police, was unarmed. The whole thing was a lie. Very important that you know this right away. The whole thing was a lie. There was no profiling. There was no racism. And it gets worse, actually, than this. It's, it's even worse than you think. Smith College officials were emphasizing reconciliation and healing after the incident, the New York Times writes. In the months to come, they announced a raft of anti-bias training for all staff, a revamped and more sensitive campus police force, and the creation of dormitories set aside for black students and other students of color, end quote. That's a, that's a thing that, that continues to happen on these campuses. There are dorms that are segregated at the request of my, at the demand of minority students. And in, in some cases at my college, at Amherst College, which is right down the road from Smith, and they, you can take all classes at one, you can take all the classes from one when you're at the other. So there is a lot of crossover at these schools. And Smith is an all, an all women's college, although I'm being serious. I don't know how they describe that now because there are gender fluid people who attend Smith who are not biological females. So they've, they've eliminated gender from the student constitution. I'm serious. So I don't even know. It's all women, except it's not all women. That's the best way I could put it to you. And, and that's just a biological fact. So... Uh, this this situation, this story reminds me of so many things that I saw going on when I was on campus. And it's not surprising at all that this is how the administrators, the cowardly administrators, acted about all of this. Um, because here, here's part of the problem. Not only was there no bias, this student, Ms. Canoete, uh, wrote on her Facebook page and put a photo up. She doxed. A, a worker whom she thought, I mean, you really have to get on the details of the story, she thought was the person who called the police or campus police, and she was wrong. She doxed the wrong person. She thought a cafeteria worker was the one who said that she, you know, who, who called security on her. So let, let's go down the, the list here. Remember, this is a big national story. And the, the list is there was no bias found in the incident whatsoever. This woman, Ms. Canoete, was eating in a dorm that was closed for the summer. She should not have been there. She was not allowed to be there under the rules of the college. She just decided she was going to open it for herself and lounge out and hang out and do the whole thing, right? She was laying out over, over some benches or couches or something and in, a, in a dark room, in a dark, uh, I think it actually is a lounge room, and a, a custodian, a janitor, saw her and did exactly what he was supposed to do, which they said, call security. And so unarmed security showed up and said, hey, you know, what are you supposed to, what, what are you doing here? 
And she wasn't supposed to be there. And security had a nice, polite conversation with her. Said, hey, can you go to one of the other dorms? This dorm is closed. I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, somebody like at a, at a, at a stadium or something. You know, if one of the security guys comes up to you and says, oh, you know, you're actually in 24A and need to be in 24C. Could you move over because here are some other, you know, this is a nothing burger event. This is nothing. But here's what you have to know. This black female student at Smith College, Ms. Kanuete, she knows the rules of the game now. And she knows, ah, I don't like this. I might have been embarrassed for a moment by this for whatever reason because I wasn't supposed to be there. But the rules don't really apply to me because I'm oppressed. I'm special, you see. And I have a lot of power as long as I play the right card. And so she did. She said that she was terrified because the officer might have had a weapon. But all campus officers are unarmed at Smith. And she would know that. She's a student there. And she could also see when somebody has a gun as a police officer, you know. You can see it on them. There was no weapon. This was just somebody who walked up. It was a security guard, basically. He said, hey, this dorm is closed. She went on a rampage online. And she decided that she was going to get even. The Smith College president, who makes half a million dollars a year in salary, 500K plus, folks, uh, and also all kinds of benefits, and basically just goes to cocktail parties and gives speeches that people write on occasion. That's all. That's her job. She decided it was time to go full woke and throw people under the bus. They put the janitor, who couldn't even see if Ms. Canuete was... was Uh, male or female on leave and because they had a transcript of the phone call you're not going to believe what Canoete decided to do when the transcript of the phone call came out. Get ready for it. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. How fake racism destroys lives. You can consider this a 101 class today. Based on this story at Smith College, and again, I, I am here at CPAC, so if you hear any commotion in the background, it's because I'm at CPAC in Orlando, Florida, and just getting a taste of being in a free state like Florida instead of a lockdown state like New York, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. It's pretty amazing. But now I, I have to get back into this really troubling story that is, I think, the, the single... The, the, the single most upsetting story of abuse of this new weaponization of racism claims that you see going on. And it happens on a, on a regular basis. We all know this stuff happens. And here you have Smith College, a, a bucolic, all-women's college, although I don't know if they say that anymore because it's so gender fluid and there's, you know, gender is just a state of mind and all that stuff. And I know this place very well. I I tried to convince my little sister that it wasn't really for her. She went and visited, and then she managed to find on her own that it was not a place where a rational person would want to spend four years. By the way, I'll tell you this. Beautiful town. Northampton, great food. Beautiful town. The winters there are very cold and snowy, but also quite lovely in their own way. But Smith has been ruined by ideology. It used to be that Amherst was a, was a men's college where I went, and Smith was a women's college, as well as Holyoke, and they, people would go to school there, and they would often find their, their future spouse there, and that was the system, and then Amherst went co-ed, 
and Smith and Holyoke went in a different direction. Not quite co-ed, but not quite not co-ed. I don't know what you'd, I don't know how to describe it exactly. So this story that I've been telling you, you have this, uh, this student who claimed bias at a very minor incident where everything was by the book. There was nothing, there was nothing that was in any way, and a law firm that specializes in bias investigations did a full, a full look into this and said, there's nothing here. Nothing here. Nothing, nothing happened. There was no incident. But we've so trained people today, especially people who are Gen Z, people who are millennials, we've so trained them to look, to look for bias where none exists because they recognize it as a lever of power. It's a tool that can be used. It makes people feel good. It's a form of reverse bullying. And that's exactly what happened here. You have the college president making 500K plus a year. You have a student who uh, decided that she was the target of a, race, uh, of a racist incident when there was no reason to believe that that was the case. And you also have a student who I, I would be very curious to know, is she paying tuition? How much tuition is she paying? Was she in any way assisted as a diversity admit to the school? You know, these are the questions that if we're really going to have a fair and equitable college admissions process, shouldn't we be able to know some of these things? Shouldn't we be able to know what the advantage is in the admissions process for people who have a, a particular background? By the way, including legacies, including athletes, but also including the advantages of race in admissions, which we all know are very real. They're, it's actually an enormous advantage. And if you have parents from Mali, from what is uh, Northwest Africa, which, Ms., uh, w- w- which this student does, uh, Ms. Kenawete, uh, then that's, in a, that's a tremendous advantage in the admissions process, too. So she's going to a school where she was admitted in part, likely, it's likely that she was admitted in part because of the advantage of her race, because it is true that there is a racial advantage in admissions in colleges. We know that. That's a fact. It's established. The Supreme Court looks at it. I know people don't like to talk about it. It's true. This happens. Not if you're Asian. If you're Asian, too bad. You know, it's uh, rough for you. But Democrats don't need to create the same framework of, of disadvantage for you. They're, they're, not, they're not claiming that you're so deeply oppressed. And so... This is the other part of this, though, that really, that really got my attention. You have, it's remarkable, um, Ms. Canoete, when the transcript, because the custodian, the janitor, called in uh, to student security, or to, to uh, campus security, rather, called in and said, you know, that I couldn't tell if it was male or female because didn't even look, just knew that somebody was in a dark lounge area of a closed-off dorm and the and the advice and look, these campuses are very open to the public. There are there are vagrants and there are people that are you know trespassing and are not supposed to be there. That does happen. I had a very dear friend who was attacked in her bed by a local of some of some sort. And you know, I remember running around the building when I when I found out what had happened, trying to find this guy. Uh, you know, th- there there are incidents that happen even in a sleepy town like this, but. What ended up happening here that I thought was so interesting was that she found out that this guy didn't know her gender and said he, 
because he because he couldn't see into the room and it was dark. He assumed it was a he. That that she was upset that she was misgendered. That was another part of the complaint later on. She was misgendered. Oh, yes, I'm sure this guy on purpose did that, right? This janitor who's been working at the college for years and years, who, and it's written in the article, is making $40,000 a year, okay? This guy is just, this is your average, everyday American working hard. And I know what those janitors are. I became very good friends with the janitor at Amherst College, particularly my junior year. I lived in a dorm called Crossit. And I, I remember having talks with him about the stuff that he would have to, you know, I, I know, I don't want to be gross, but college kids act like savages. Okay, they do. And, you know, this is somebody's dad. I mean, he was, you know, wife and kids. And he was cleaning up vomit and urine and all the time, all the time. These little brats would act like that. And, you know, he was getting paid. He was supposed to be getting paid to, you know, make sure the facilities look nice and everything functions and to change light bulbs when necessary. And, and instead, a lot of his job was, you know, cleaning up the vomit and urine of privileged brats, including woke privileged brats in particular, I might add. So, you know, this is, this is another instance here where the facts do not matter. As I've told you now, there was no reason to believe there was bias. There was nothing about this incident that, uh, that has any connection to what a rational person would think is racist or is wrong. But it didn't matter. That's the other part of this. Smith College still put the janitor on paid leave. Another woman who was a cafeteria worker, Kanawete, uh, decided that she was going to out her because she didn't realize who it was at first who called security. And so w- what ended up happening was she, she uh, said, the wrong, said the wrong person. She gave the wrong name. It's really awful, really awful. Um, so, you know, this is student workers, by the way, just, just to give you some more of the details here. Student workers were not supposed to use the Tyler cafeteria, which was reserved for uh, a camp for summer children. That's why you weren't supposed to have students in these different cafe- in, in, the, in some of the cafeterias, some of these areas. And the summer camp area was, was off limits. That was the whole the whole thing here. But even the janitors knew that if they had to enforce any of these rules, they were in trouble. We used to joke, don't let a rich student report you because if you do, you're gone. Mark Patanade said he's a janitor. Ms. Canoete took her food and walked through a set of French doors, crossed a foyer, reclined in the shadowed lounge of a dormitory closed for the summer where she scrolled the web as she ate. A large stuffed bear obscured the view of her from the cafeteria. So it was kind of a lounge off of a cafeteria in a dorm. It's complicated, but but she thought that somebody else was the one who called security. It was a janitor. She thought it was a different person. And she outed that person. Ms. Blair, the cafeteria worker, received an email from a reporter at the Boston Globe asking her to comment on why she called security on Ms. Canoete for, quote, eating while black. That puzzled her, the author writes here. What did she have to do with this? The food services director called the next morning. Jackie, he said, you're on Facebook. She found that Ms. Kenowete had posted her photograph, name, and email. This is the racist person, Ms. Kenowete wrote of Ms. Blair, adding that Ms. Patanade, Mr. Patanade, rather the janitor, was also guilty. He, in fact, worked an early shift that day and had already gone home at the time of the incident. 
Ms. Canoete also lashed out at the Smith administration. They're, assa- they're essentially enabling racist, cowardly acts. Ms. Blair, again, the entirely innocent party who did not call the police, had nothing to do with this. Okay, just to be very clear, person who was just doing her job, working as a cafeteria worker, making, you know, 37, 38 grand a year, whatever it is. She has uh, lupus, a disease of the immune system, and stress triggers episodes. She ended up going to the hospital because of all this. I mean, you just go through this, and you know what it is? You have uh, a couple of white, working-class, hard-working employees of Smith College totally thrown under the bus by the $500,000-a-year white female president of Smith College, very privileged person, because a black female student decided that she was going to have some fun with weaponizing a racism accusation. This isn't just about Smith College. For those of you wondering, why is Buck spending so much time today on one school uh, in Massachusetts? And yes, there's some nostalgia for me because I spent a lot of time there and I have a lot of stories I can tell you about that place, bizarre ones. But it's because this is actually now corporate culture, too. This is across the whole country. This is what wokeness means. It doesn't matter if you didn't do anything wrong. It's a conversation we need to have, they'll tell you. It doesn't matter if you were just enforcing the rules as they're supposed to be. You offended somebody who's a minority, a protected minority. Because remember, some minorities are protected and others aren't. Doesn't matter what the truth is. Doesn't matter what you did. All that matters in this is that the wokeness gets to pick people to destroy. It's about power. It's about power for people who claim they don't have it, but they know that as long as they play this game, they do. And they enjoy it. They get a, they get a thrill out of it. Ruining the lives of working class people who are, who are cleaning up, who are literally cleaning up vomit and throw up and the mess that these brats leave behind all the time. Get them death threats online, which happened to the cafeteria worker and the janitor. Get them death threats online. Um, make them unemployable in other jobs they try to look for, which also happened because a black female student didn't like being told, you're not actually supposed to be eating in here. Could you please go to the other cafeteria? That's the America we actually live in today. That's reality. That's what wokeness is. That's what this story is. Don't forget it because this is what we're contending with now. This is, instead of, instead of Soviet class struggle... We have Soviet-style racial Marxism in this country now. That's what's happening, and it's destroying us. It's pulling us apart. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Well, look at this. A new story breaking today, actually, that is tying in with exactly what we've been, or some of what we've been talking about In the last hour, Supreme Court asked to outlaw race-based college admissions. The group challenging Harvard admissions policies says it files an appeal asking the court uh, over the 2003 Grutter decision. This is Grutter v. Bollinger. This is uh, this is excellent. Supreme Court has now been has now been asked to outlaw race-based admissions. Uh, Let's be very clear about this. The Supreme Court should absolutely outlaw race-based admissions okay there's there's no good faith way to uh no good faith way to argue that this isn't an equal protection clause violation of course it's an equal protection clause violation 
And the, the way that this is finally coming to the forefront, I think, is because of Asian Americans and their treatment in this whole process. Because if we have, you know, you're always told that there's this system of white supremacy. That's what they'll say, a system of white supremacy in America. And they've expanded that term white supremacy tremendously, right? They've expanded it a whole heck of a lot so that now it includes things that no reasonable person before would have ever thought constitutes white supremacy. I mean, they wouldn't have thought that, right? But now it's whatever they say it is. It's whatever the left, whatever the woke mob decides constitutes white supremacy is just that. And the problem that they have to contend with is that the average Asian American household makes more money in America than the average white American household does. That the people who are most overrepresented as a percentage of population in elite colleges across the country are Asian Americans, not, in fact, white Americans. So how is it that we have a system that they tell us is dedicated to the perpetuation, the the elevation, unfair elevation of one race in America, but that's not even accurate based on the facts about who is the most elevated as a percentage of population in elite institutions and when it comes to household wealth and things of that nature. How is that possible? How can you argue, for for example, that Hispanic and Latino uh, Americans or Hispanic or Latino, I refuse to use this term Latinx, I've actually never met a Latino or Hispanic person who likes the term Latinx, so I think that's always, that's always a tell. But how is it that you can explain at Harvard, at Stanford, at you name it, University of Michigan, that's where the Grutter v. Bollinger decision was, University of Michigan, how can you explain the uh, situation where Asian Americans are discriminated against, but Latino Americans get a, they, they get a benefit in the admissions process. Well, why is that fair? There's no legacy of slavery to discuss when you're talking about Latino, uh, Latino applicants. So, and also, what really constitutes even being in one of these categories? Another problem they have is that categories like white and Latino, and, and even a category uh, like black, there are so many variations within these categories. So, you know, being African-American is a, is a different thing and you have had a different experience than being somebody who comes from uh, Nigeria or Mali or Cameroon, right? It's a different thing. You've had a different experience. Being a white person can be somebody who grew up, you know, on Martha's Vineyard, for heaven's sakes, Or you could be somebody who is very light-skinned from northern Iraq or Afghanistan. There are Caucasians, in fact, throughout much of the western Eurasia who are just as white as anybody else. Uh, And, you know, in terms of their actual skin, you'd see them and say, well, they're they're white. And they have all kinds of oppression and and, uh, problems that they've had to deal with, systemic problems. These categories are so messy as to be meaningless Except they're not about fair, they're about power. This is Buck's First Thoughts, the news you need to get through your day in 45 minutes. Make sure you subscribe on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm here at CPAC, which is fun because I get to see buddies of mine that I usually only get to interact with on a, on a virtual level. I get to have them call <laughs> in or join uh, by, by Skype or whatever. But Ben Ferguson of the Ben Ferguson Show is here with me. And Ben, I got to tell everybody, you, you were supposed to bring your tennis rackets so we could play. And I did not bring mine, so the good news is... I let, I let you off the hook, by the way. I should have played it up. I should have seemed like I was devastated when you walked up. You're like, I forgot my rackets. And I was relieved because I forgot mine, too. But I should have held you on the hook. Like, dude, I had a court at 2 o'clock for us. Two, I did not play that well. I was too nice to you. Two, uh, two guys with side parts who like to play tennis. Not a surprise. There, see, here. there you go. So what, what's, it, what's it feel like for you? I want to know one thing. When you leave New York City... And you arrive in Florida. Yes, there's some different rules and regulations. By the way, people are still wearing masks here a lot and everything. But when you leave New York City and you get to Florida, you feel like this is kind of what normal life feels. It's not quite normal here, but this is closer it's, to normal it's, life. It's a lot closer to normal than anywhere else. How does it compare to, to Texas and to Tennessee, two other states that you spend a lot of your, where you're from? And yeah, you spend a lot of time so, in. so in, in Tennessee, the state, the governor there, Governor Lee, has done a great job of saying, hey— we're going to be pro business, pro opening up. We're not going to hold you back. We're going to get. We want to get the kids back to school. The problem is in big cities like Nashville and Memphis, they have their own health departments. So by law, they get to make their rules. The governor can't overrun them. So they've been like, no, no, no. We shut down here. Like our restaurant was twenty five percent occupancy until like two weeks ago. No one can make a living doing that. We're going to lose the the, the, the area restaurant association. They believe that we'll probably lose at least 40% of restaurants that will never open again. Like, close, here are the keys back, we're done. We, we, we've lost our business, we're done. Same thing in Houston. You've got, you've got a, a mayor there, hardcore liberal, right? Big defund the police guy, you know, Black Lives Matter riots, protests, let's, you know. And, and, and again, a guy that has said, no, 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 I have control. I'm going to shut us down. We're not going to have bars open. We're not going to have tourism. We're not going to have sports. We're not going to have it. I mean, they have, they have suffocated these cities, and, and we're going to lose there. 35, they think 35% of the restaurants will never reopen. How far down, like, as, estimate for us, because I know you own a barbecue restaurant. Yeah. And when the world opens, I've promised Ben that I'm going to actually go and try his brisket, and I'm going to compare it to the best Brooklyn hipster brisket. And I, I'm, I'm going to be ruthless about this. I, I'm just going to let I will, you know. I, I, there are very few things I feel confident about in life, Buck. There, there's two of them. One, that my serve's going to be better than yours. And two, the brisket <laughs> the, <laughs> the brisket is going to be better than Brooklyn. I, I feel very confident in those two things. So, first of all, <laughs> don't worry. If you yeah. beat me in tennis, I'll beat you in ping pong. There you go. Exactly. We're paddle, obviously, we're paddle sports guys. That's the way it has to go. And second of all... Um, I, I just feel like the the barbecue wars among various parts of this country is one of the few places where everybody is everyone's sort of convinced that if only you try the best of my regional variety, you will no, you will I, know I, I that will, it is supreme. So, so I, I it's funny, I'm a I'm an advocate for the barbecue world. It's a lost art. It is a it is it's truly art. And there are there are people that I will take you to go see, and it's amazing, who have built their own smokers their way who cook their way, who show up at 2 in the morning and do it their way. There are some of the most amazing places that may disappear because of COVID, right, uh, that I will take you to when you come to Memphis. But, but the restaurant industry in general, I think that's where you're at, going kind of like, what, what do you do? I mean, look at our employees. They're underemployed right now, right? I think Democrats were in favor of a living wage. 
we're underemployed because we've had employees we've had to shift hours around. We've had to lay off people. We've had to say we don't have enough hours for you. If you got to get a job somewhere else, get a job somewhere else. I'm sorry because when you operate at 25% for months on end, you don't need a full staff. You can't afford a full staff. I can only serve 25% of the food I was serving before. And so th- this has destroyed those those hourly workers and we pay above average wages at our at my restaurant, something I care about. And and I want to make sure that people are not struggling. You get, you get what I want to be a good employer. But I've had to look at them going, I cannot employ you. If you need to leave, I understand it. I can't give you 40 hours. Right, because at you some need point, leave, you, you would have to sh- I mean, the whole place would shut, shut down. down. Yeah, and, and no one can make money at 25%. I mean, I, I didn't realize barbecue has good margins, right? It, it, I mean, it does. It has good margins because you have a very simple menu. You don't have a lot of items on that menu. You don't have a lot of loss, Right. If we cook briskets and we run out, we, we're proud of that. We put a huge sign up that says, out of brisket. Right? We run out of ribs for the day. We run out of ribs for the day. That happens it's when like, I arrive. Right, I will and cry. It, it, right. You know. No, it does, but it's kind of like a rite of passage. Like, man, our stuff's good. We run out all the time. And, and so there's no, there, it's a good margin business, but there's no business that can run at 25%. How long do you think they're going to continue? Because my, my big... We just went to 50% with no reason behind it. Just arbitrary number. Like, Well, this is my, what I'm saying, because in New York... They just went from I, I make I make jokes about how stupid the lockdowns are, and and now I'm actually concerned. It's almost like Governor Cuomo listens to my show or something and goes, you know what? Just to be a jackass, I'm going to do the thing. The, that the he opposite was making of what you say. Oh no, no, he'll do the thing that I've been making fun of for real. I like. So this. I've been saying because I said, why are we open at 25 percent? Why not 27.5 percent? You know, throw the margin right. Up a what, what, bit. If this is based on science, then the numbers shouldn't be round they, numbers. They, they did. They did 35 percent. Now they've gone from 25 to 35. Not even 50. And I'm like, well, why stop there? When's the 40 percent opening? I mean, it's all such arbitrary crap. And and my my concern is that people don't understand. Yes, they're going to let up on this for a little bit once the weather gets better in all these places. The cases are going way down. But they think that they have the right to reinstitute this, and there will be aerosolized virus next winter time. There will be, and might seem there might be. Might by the way, how do we handle flu? The flu has basically been eradicated, according to CDC where, numbers where, where right now. Where, where did it go? Where did it go? Where did it go? The flu has, has been eradicated. So we're to believe, and I, I want to be very clear because you know I get. I don't know if you've had this. I've been attacked by the politifact and those maniacs for just saying. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, of course. They Congratulations. Do, they do stories on how I'm telling partially true things. I'm like yeah. also known as seeing reality. But the flu is somehow gone. The flu will come back. I mean, when I say somehow, that's just what they say. This is the, the masking and social distancing obviously didn't work very well this winter time overall. I mean, right. you could say it worked a little bit if you want, but clearly we set all-time records for deaths. And flu, though, is gone. These things will come back, Ben, at some level, and there will be a knee-jerk reaction in places, even in places like Nashville, even in places you, you the look at, in blue states, and they're going to be shutting down barbecue joints you, again. You, mark my word, the people that are making the decisions, these health departments, they're elected by no one. They're appointed, which bothers me, right? You've got Cuomo and others, right? But the people under them that all of a sudden got this power to shut down America, they're not elected by anybody. The health department that can shut down your business, that can fine you thousands of dollars, that can take away your business license, are elected by no one. And the and these rules, I'll just give you an example. We, November, December, they said 25% occupancy. Then they said, but you, Buck Sexton, cannot sit at the same table with Ben Ferguson. If you don't live in the same household, you're not allowed to sit together. And we had to check IDs. My father and I could make barbecue together all day at our restaurant. 
We could prepare briskets, trim briskets, put on firewood, work side by side all day long. But if we want to eat lunch together, we're not allowed to eat lunch together at the same table because we don't live at the same address. So the rule they made was on top of the 25% rule, the tables also had to be at least six feet apart, which took us below 25% occupancy, even at their 25 number. So we're like, all right, just which one is it? Is it six feet apart? Is it six feet apart or 25%? Or is it, I can't eat with anybody I don't live with. And then they said another arbitrary rule they threw in there. You can have no more than two adults, no more than two adults at the same table. So now is it two adults? Is it 25% occupancy? Is it six feet apart? Is it we can't live in the same household? Which one is it? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. So this is, this is the other part of it that I, I try to tell everybody that there, there was also something of a glee, at least in New York, for the people that were making these decisions that they were really important all of a sudden. Yep. Really powerful. Really powerful. And, and you see this from some of the, some of the uh, decision-making that was going on where they would say things like, uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to go out there and do deterrence enforcement, meaning we're going, to, we're going to pick people and nail them because you're not doing enough of what we say. I mean, when you're talking about industries, restaurants is the one that's most known, but also the hotel industry, and they're sending out in New York City, which is, you know, it's also regionalized that even though this is a, a, you know, a show that's on in all 50 states, um, you know, we all know our own, we all know our own, yeah. you know, nightmarish lockdown reality. And in some places I know it's much worse than it is in others, but they would send in New York, they would send out sheriff's deputies for the city of New York. People didn't, I worked for the NYPD. I didn't even heard of the sheriff's department. They, You're like, they where they come out, from? They sent out some law enforcement agency that has a few hundred people that work for it that are part of the sort of New York state, but the New York city version of the New York state sheriffs. And they were giving people enormous fines in restaurants that were struggling to just barely keep their doors open. And, and they were I don't know if you 15, saw this. $1,500 fines for a dropped mask. I, I don't know if you guys saw this, but we I've noticed this. They picked restaurants that would get great press for the enforcement. We had restaurants that were kind of iconic restaurants that were getting picked on, and it's like they decided, hey, if we can nail that, that's yep. a headline, right? If we can go to that restaurant that everybody knows, it will get on the news. And that's how they picked the restaurant. Was how famous is it? How historic is it? What part of town is it in? Do people know that restaurant? Is it a significant restaurant with a chef that people would know? So we get a headline that will come after everyone. It's sick. 